There's nothing that we've been able to create on our own, especially nothing good that hasn't come from you. And so, Father, uh, your children in humility and in submission and in grace to you, give you everything that you have given us, uh, especially our hearts and now our ears. Uh, in humility to hear that the word that you've delivered to Pastor Joe today, make it be quick, make it pierce us, make it cause us to move for your kingdom. In the name of your son, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So I know what you meant, but it was kind of funny. That's the first time the worship director would say, and pray that the pastor's word would be quick. (laughs) But I know that's not what you meant. You meant it like it'd be powerful, but still. uh, Jeff said quick. My name's Joe Davis. I'm the pastor here at Grace Life, and today is exciting. Uh, we bring the house lights up just a little bit uh, today because there's beautiful people out there, and I want excellent, excellent. I want. We're starting a new series today on first the book of First John, and the title of the series is "So Our Joy Is Complete." That's the title. That's the topic. That's the that's the place that we want to end up when we finish this series. And so I want to kind of cast a vision for you of what I hope you can expect over the next several weeks out of 1 John. You know, many believe that 1 John is actually this tiny little book. It's only five chapters. Many believe it is actually the best place for new Christians to start reading the Bible. And that's true. But the fact of the matter is it wasn't written to new Christians. It was written to people who had been believers for years. So, in reality, while it's a good book for people who are brand new Christians to start reading, it's really important for all of us. And my hope is that through this series, uh, that you will become experts in regards to Apostle John and his theology. Because as, as an introduction, it is important for you as we start this series, it is, in, is important and crucial for you to understand and learn who John was. And why he wrote these epistles that we're going to be studying, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and why they are important for you today. So we're not going to actually start with the first few verses today because it's just kind of an introduction to the series today. But I'm going to look at this passage, 1st John chapter 1, verse 4, because I believe in that contains the goal, the purpose why John writes this epistle. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. I have a lot to say on that later. But first, I want to talk about the historical aspect of this, who John was. He's called John the Elder by many, and he's a very important figure in Christianity. And you're going to see some things. First of all, I want you to understand how crucial John was to Jesus himself. So when Jesus called John, he was fishing. That's all John knew was fishing. His whole life was around the idea of catching fish and selling them for money so that he could live. It's all he knew. But when Jesus called him, John left everything that he knew for certain that, was made, that made him comfortable. He left it all and followed Jesus immediately. Not only was that the case, he was so crucial to Jesus. At the end of Jesus' ministry, when he's about to die, he looks down from the cross and he says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's John, He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Think about this. Jesus has all these brothers, 
and all these sisters and all these cousins and all these extended family, yet he turns to someone outside his family to take care of his mother as he is about to die. That's pretty amazing. Think about that. That's a pretty important guy to Jesus. Not only that, it's interesting. John actually sets the example that we learn about later in Acts, some other places, that part of the job of the church is to take care of the widows. He's the first one to do it. So he sets a tone and an example of how the church is supposed to look after the downtrodden and people who are hurting and wounded. He is a pioneer in this. So that's how he was crucial to Jesus. But he was very crucial to Paul, who you guys know we've talked about a lot at Grace Life. Matter of fact, Paul says, you know, John commissioned me in Galatians uh, 2.9. This is what uh, uh, Paul writes. And when James and Cephas, Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, we're talking about pillars in the church that was starting in Jerusalem, perceived that grace had been given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews or to the circumcised. And so Paul mentions the fact that John, the elder, John, the apostle, saw that God had saved me and God had transformed me and God had given me grace. And he affirmed that by giving me the hand of fellowship. In other words, he said, you are one of us. You're one like Peter. You're one like me. You're one like James. You go and take the gospel to those who are Gentiles. Not only that, I love this part. You know what John did? He continued Paul's work in Ephesus once Paul was in prison and, and dying. So I have a map for you. Just understand. So you see where this is a modern day Turkey. Okay? And you see where Ephesus is right there, right? You see where Ephesus is. And all the other stars are churches that John planted once he moved to Ephesus to become the apostle there to oversee this church that Paul had started to make sure things were going smoothly. Think about this now. He was the, an apostle to Jews. Paul's gone off the scene. And John says, you know what? I'm going to shift gears. I'm now going to become another apostle to the Gentiles. I'm going to take over what my dear brother Paul has started, and I'm going to make sure it expands. And he started some more churches. You see the names of them. I'm not going to read them because some of them I can't pronounce. I don't want to embarrass myself. I want you to think I know everything. So I'm not going to read. But he started all these churches around Ephesus. He took Ephesus and launched it and became a of the region became the most dominant force for Christianity in that region. So you could see how he would be important to Paul and crucial to Paul. But then lastly, he was crucial to the church. Here's some reasons why. He's the last living apostle. All the other ones have died or have been executed. They're no longer on the scene. And John the Elder is now revered, loved, respected, but he might be a little cantankerous. He's in his 90s, which, by the way, is an absolute miracle in itself because the average age then was 35, maybe 40. And God made him live a long time. So he's probably got, he's probably, you know, how people, once they get a little bit older, they're a little direct. That's John. <laughs> he's about to be sent and exiled to the Isle of Patmos because of his preaching. He's the only one left on the earth who had witnessed all of Jesus' ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, 
He witnessed Pentecost and he witnessed the birth of the church. He's the only one left. He's a precious resource of love and authority for the first century church. So you can see how he's crucial that way. He also wrote five books. All of these were written later in his life, all kind of closely together, mostly written late. And then he wrote, these are the books, the Gospel of John. These epistles we're going to study, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then the book of Revelation. All considered the final, crucial, apostolic theological statements for the church. Once John is gone, there is no more apostolic authority. Some teach that there still is, but the definition of an apostle is somebody who saw the resurrected Jesus. He saw him. And so once he's gone, there is no more apostolic authority. And so his words are the ultimate authority of theology for the first century church. That's why it's so important. And because of that, he is crucial to the church because he is the protector of it at this time. He's the last one. He is setting the tone for what is good theology. The church is young. The church is susceptible to false doctrine. It's important that the theology of the first century church stays pure, especially in these early stages now that Paul is gone. John is the last guard. It's fascinating that God puts him with the Gentiles late in his life. So with that in mind, there are two reasons why John writes this first epistle of 1 John. First of all, he wants to comfort those struggling with doubt. There are those who are, who are cast about. There's a lot of bad teachers out there. Remember, Paul talked about them all the time. Paul hated them. It's very clear that false teaching was one of the biggest concerns the apostles had. And so he wants to comfort those who are struggling with doubt. Wait a minute. Do I really have what it takes? Am I believing the right gospel? But then he also wants to keep apostolic theology pure. He wants to go on record late in his life saying, this is the teaching of Jesus. It lines up with Paul. It lines up with Peter. It lines up with James. It lines up with Matthew. I am affirming with my gospel of John, which was the last gospel written after all the others. I am affirming this is what happened. See, things that seemed very simple and true were under direct attack. We're going to learn more about this next week, but here's what John was fighting. It's something called Gnosticism. Okay, I'm just going to read it for you. We'll talk more about it next week when we look at verses 1 through 4. Here's what they would teach. Christ's humanity was an optical illusion cast on humanity by God, the master magician. Jesus only seemed to be human. His sufferings were not actual. In other words, he didn't really experience any pain. He didn't really bleed. He didn't really die. It's more of a production, an object lesson. It was more apparent to the eye rather than actual suffering. You can see, if you know anything about the Bible, how that would be a huge problem. And as a matter of fact, the humanity of Jesus is the reason we have redemption. And we'll talk about more of that next week. So that's the history of the book of John and why it's important. I hope you guys are tracking with me. Let's talk about the spiritual part of this. Absolutes are under attack. Guys, let me tell you something. This is nothing new. John knew the attacks on absolute truth would rob the churches he was looking after of joy. But because for some reason, and I can't really explain it all away, but people always feel the need to change spiritual and earthly truth for selfish reasons, intellectual pride, money, crowds, 
maybe to appease guilt. I don't know, but people are always looking at ways to tinker with and change and transform truth to make it more appealing. From Abraham to Moses to the prophets to the apostles, this has always been the battle, and it was the biggest concern for the apostles. 2,000 years of church history after they're gone, it's the same. And here's what happens. Most times when you see truth attacked, it is not aimed at the fringes. It is aimed at the things that we would mostly consider simple, absolute truth. For example, one of the things that's really gaining steam right now in Christianity is this idea that smart people, and they are intelligent people, they try to deny the actual existence of the biblical Jesus. It is a great story that we can learn a lot from, but historical Jesus didn't really exist. Everybody was named Jesus. It was just a collective idea talking about the idea of Jesus' teachings. This is insane because in reality, there is mountains of archaeological and historical evidence of the historical Jesus. More than most Caesars of Rome. Did you know that? It's pretty fascinating. The fact is you don't have to, you can be an atheist. You don't have to be a Christian and believe Jesus existed. It's very clear he did. But even that is under attack today, let alone the spiritual truth. Think about it. If you can say, well, the historical Jesus was just kind of like, you know, a picture, an illustration. Can you imagine how much under attack his teachings will become? This is just one example. I could list dozens for an hour. I mean, I won't do that. But that's an example of something that is absolute. Well, of course, the historical Jesus existed. Yet some people are teaching, nah. What, Paul, what John was battling was the idea that Jesus was not really physical. It was just an illusion. Apostolic theology, what we consider from the apostles and, and from Jesus, is constantly under attack. Yes, by people who don't embrace Christianity, that's fine. But what really breaks my heart is when we see churches do it even big, important ones here in Sarasota that attack absolutes of Christ's theology. Jesus didn't really have to die. He did it as an object lesson. Jesus is a way, but not the way. Different things like this, that big, important churches who have a history and a heritage of great work in our town have decided, you know what, there are no more absolutes in apostolic theology. We have this new thing called progressive theology. Theology is changing, getting better. These are the things that are under attack constantly. Let me tell you why this is important. Once the concept of absolute truth, whether it be physical or spiritual, once the concept of absolute truth is questioned, everything else becomes subjective. Nothing is reliable, and hope now becomes elusive because we don't know what we can rely upon. We don't know what we can depend upon. This was the problem with the churches around Ephesus. You know what happens without truth? Without absolutes, the only kind of joy a church can provide is temporary earthly joy. The church becomes basically, if you will, the united way with a worship band. That's really what it is. It's an institution that is powerless to bring anything other than... Temp I wrote this down because I wanted to make sure that I got it right. Institutions that become powerless to bring anything other than temporary experiential joy. 
a factory, if you will, of temporary feelings of euphoria generated by programs, songs, and events. And quite frankly, we become addicts seeking our experiential joy fix, just trying to live from one spiritual high to the next. What John knew and what we know I'm not discounting experience as part of our faith, but that is not the source of our joy. It is truth that brings joy. This series will focus on that heavily. Now, let's look at the personal part about this. I want to talk about the pursuit of joy. In my uh, social media campaign I do every week about the sermon, I wrote, bad theology will steal your joy. So I don't know if you guys remember, I'm going to define for you what... The dictionary says that joy is. And I want you to tell me what you think this feels like. Here it is. Earthly joy, an emotion caused by well-being, success, good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. That sucks. I mean, if that is what joy is, it's always going to elude us. Oh, we might grasp it for a moment. But then that new car gets a scratch. We lose that job. That relationship that we have that we depend upon so much begins to crumble. Our success is taken away by a recession. And now all of a sudden, this joy that we have been pursuing is fleeting. And all of this, as you can see, is bathed in temporary satisfaction. But if you remember, I gave you a definition for joy in Philippians, and I repeated it in 2 Corinthians. Here is the definition of real joy. A full supernatural satisfaction with God's presence over anything else. A full, complete, never-ebbing, supernatural satisfaction, unexplainable satisfaction with God's presence in your life over anything else. That's the kind of joy that I want. Every once in a while, I'll enjoy a new car, but it's not the source of supernatural satisfaction. See, the core drive for humanity is to pursue and find joy. It is, isn't it? We aren't created to seek pain and misery. We don't celebrate when our lives collapse. What's going on? Oh, it's great today. What's going on? Everything I believed in has been ripped from me. What a fantastic, I've been waiting for this moment my whole life. We're not wired that way. God created us to seek satisfaction. We know we want joy because truth, though, is under attack. Most of us can't even define it. We can't quantify it. We don't even know its source. And there are dozens of counterfeits that we fall in love with every day. Because of this, we fill our lives with those counterfeit experiences and emotions that we think bring us that satisfaction. But this idea of lasting joy becomes elusive. We are left, guys, this is important. We are left thirsty, defeated, Susceptible to bitterness, resentment, anger, sadness, doubt, 
and then confusion. Wait a minute, I thought I did it the right way. I felt so good when I walked down the aisle and professed Jesus. It was awesome when I was baptized. But that worship service was so great. The song that the band played was fantastic. What happened? What did I do to screw it up? What did I do? And now we're confused. And we are living now in the absence of true joy that these counterfeit sources have dictated to us and they tell us how to live, how to spend our money. Frankly, it's why we give up on marriages and friendships. Because true lasting joy satisfies us, but it's impossible without Jesus. As your pastor, as many of you know, our story about our family, I can tell you firsthand that the joy that John talks about, the kind of joy that Jesus spoke of, it's real. In the darkest moments of my life, I have been supernaturally satisfied with the presence of God. I promise you. And it has no human explanation except the fact that absolute truth gripped my heart. Those of us in this room that have faced the worst life can offer can testify to what this precious apostle wrote in the Gospel of John and in these epistles and expounds upon in this letter that we're going to be studying over the next three years, maybe not three years, maybe just, you know, (laughs) not that long. You know, the best way to describe what it is, I was trying to think, man, I got to figure out a way to really drive this point home to my church about what joy really is. And we can't look for the temporary stuff. We got to go with the eternal stuff. What do I do? I'm trying to come up with a pithy statement or a comment. And I called some friends. What do you think about this? Oh, that stinks. Don't use that. Okay, what about this? Oh, that's good, but don't open with it. You know, that type of thing. And all the, then I realized God might say it better than anyone. As a matter of fact, he said it through this guy, John, when he quoted Jesus, Jesus said to her at the well, at the the woman getting water from the well, he says, can I have something to drink? She goes, how can I get something to drink for you? And they have a discussion and Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. That's the, the type of joy that the world is begging you to take in. Just drink this, you're gonna love it. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. That's supernatural joy. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John quoted Jesus to explain what he meant in 1 John chapter 1, which is we write these things so that our joy may be complete. Do you see the difference between world's joy and the joy of absolute truth in Christ? So in this study, we're going to learn where true joy comes from. We will learn what a life infused by living water actually looks like. There will be no doubt. When we're done with 1 John, you'll know, ah, there is living water within me. We will learn how to know for sure if we are really children of light. And that will bring us comfort. We will become, my prayer, solid apostolic theologians. 
not for our own knowledge or for pride or so we can win arguments. That's not the reason, but so that you, I, we can know real joy no matter what the world may bring. But so that you can know that real joy is possible. So this week, I'm going to ask you to do something this week. I'm going to give you a little bit of an assignment. Every day this week, at some point, whether it's when you wake up, go to sleep, before you eat lunch, I don't care when you do it. Some of you have asked you to do it every time before you post it on Facebook. You never get anything done. But this week, whenever you are reminded, do something to remind you. Pray that God will use this epistle so that you will never thirst again. God, use the truth in 1 John to make it so I never thirst again. I'm tired of being thirsty. I'm tired of being unsatisfied. I'm tired of temporary fulfillment that leads to nothing but disappointment and guilt. I want to stop thirsting. I want to have the joy that comes from the supernatural satisfaction of your presence in my life, no matter what the circumstances may bring. Pray that we can become a church full of the kind of joy that is supernatural, the kind that leads to the grace life. Satisfaction with the presence of God over anything else. Dad, we ask, we beg of you that you would please, through this study, teach us how to thirst no more. Lord, free us from the prison, the burden of seeking temporary joy. Lord, help us to become experts in apostolic theology, the absolute truths that set us free from this vicious cycle of being satisfied only to be hungry and thirsty again. Thank you for John the Elder for his last words in these books. Give us eyes to hear, eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that will believe. In Jesus' name. Amen.